Today on Sagittarian Matters, we're gonna talk about money. We're healing your finances, leaving shame and scarcity in the dust, and answering your advice questions with very special guest, Jessie Susanna Karnatz, also known as the Money Witch. Stay tuned. Jessie Susanna Karnatz, also known as The Money Witch, is the author of the new book, Money Magic, Practical Wisdom and Empowering Rituals to Heal Your Finances. You can get this book right now, wherever you buy your books, preferably from an independent bookstore. Jessie Susanna Karnatz is also a financial coach and the founder of Money Witch, a company that uses practical financial tools and empowering rituals to help clients achieve their financial goals. She came to us on this day from San Francisco and answered a bunch of your questions and mine about healing our finances, student loans, buying a house, being an artist, getting out of scarcity, and more. Please enjoy my talk with new friend to the show, Jessie Susanna Karnatz. It's not a light book, but it's also a book that's integrated with spirituality and like a queer kind of uh, critical of capitalist lens. It's so valuable. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I tried to make it fun and accessible too, because it is kind of like a dense topic. Um, So, you know, it's visually pretty. And my goal when I was writing it at a certain point in my process is I wanted it to be like the right proportions of, um, I said like broccoli, candy and psychedelic mushrooms. Like it has, it was like a little bento box, like, you know, the ones that look like a little rabbit or something. Oh my God. Um, I, I, you're probably, you've probably told this story till you're blue in the face, but can you tell people how you got into being the money, witch? It's a real meandering tale. It's such um, a great tale. Okay. I was working. Okay. So I spent most of my 20s um, working in the sex industry, mostly in strip clubs. And um, that started out in uh, Florida and Atlanta. And I ended up in the Bay. Um, and I ended up in San Francisco at the Lusty Lady Peep Show, RIP, where many honorable homosexual uh, people have worked over the years. Um, but we, I think it was 2004, we were all getting laid off. Um, they were going to close it down. The Peep Show had already, already unionized. Um, so we were kind of an organized workforce anyway. And we were like, let's just buy it. So I was on the founding board of directors, uh, buying the peep show. And through that, I kind of used the like money magic side of things that I had from, you know, being around so much cash for so long. Like there's an energetic quality to that, I think. And strip clubs are kind of like these temples of cash. Um, and then I like learned how to buy a business off the internet, like a million dollar business off the internet in 2004. Um, We just like made it up and did it. And then I started working with other worker-owned cooperatives through an organization called No Boss, which is like the network of Bay Area worker co-ops. And um, I started a 
anyway, there was like this kind of realization that there was not a lot of accessible financial services and there's so much financial scarcity in these alternative economic scenes. Um, and people were like working so hard and giving all of their energy, but there just wasn't enough money. And I really wanted, it's like, you just have to make enough money or it's just, it's not sustainable. Right. Like yeah. we've all experienced like, you know, punk activists burnout over the years and the real, the real sweet spot is like, not like, oh, we have to do this and just keep grinding. And, you know, because this is the better way to do it, even though we're all miserable, it's like, what if we could do it how we want to do it? And also there was money. Um, so in order to do that, we have to learn how to not just like earn money, you know, spend money, organize money, but like be with money. So I had started another business with a business partner um, back in 2008, kind of doing financial services for uh, worker co-op people, uh, people I knew from the sex work industry. That fell apart because I got pregnant. I was sick. It was a bad partnership, like the business partnership, you know, which it's like business partnerships are just as real as any other kind of partnerships. And um Anyway, fast forward a few years, we got evicted out of our giant San Francisco Victorian mansion in 2012, a tale as old as time. And I decided I wanted to get divorced. And then I was like, oh, I have a three-year-old. It's San Francisco in 2012. Um, I live in like one of the most expensive places on earth. I have only a culinary degree. I have like 10 years in the sex work industry. I have no job. I'm now getting divorced. Like I need to make some money. So I tried to do a bunch of other things. Like I tried to go back to dancing. I like basically got shut down by God at every turn. You know, we, me and my sister were like selling joints and margaritas in Dolores Park for a while. That was awesome. Again, got like crazy arrested for no reason, even though everyone else was able to sell at the park. Um, but definitely there was a sort of like divinely guided path toward where I was supposed to end up, which is being this strangely qualified vessel for financial healing. What was your feeling about money and how you approached your finances like before all of that? I don't even know. Well, I guess, you know, I was working a lot. Like I, I, I had gotten a culinary degree while I was working in strip clubs because I was at the peep show and close with like a number of other dancers that were about 10 years older than me. And I just was like, oh, I can see that at some point I'm going to want to do something, you know, I'm going to want to move out of this industry or want another job and I don't have a plan. So let me like figure something out. So I was like working in the culinary industry. I was working in the sex work industry and I just was used to like work all the time. Like, you know, so it was just like, oh, you need money. Um, and I was young. I was able-bodied. Like I had no kids. I was not like financially responsible for anyone else. So I just was like, make a bunch of money, you know, like work a yeah. bunch, make a bunch of money, do whatever you want with it. Be broke, work a bunch, you know, rinse and repeat. So so now you, you teach workshops and you have clients, you do coach financial coaching and you've integrated this emotional, this kind of emotional and political part 
to your work on top of all the like just skills, just like money skills that you have. Um, God, I have so many, I have so many questions. I mean, I'm supposed to have so many questions for you, but I just, I have so many questions for you. Honestly, I mean, I think it was from, from sex workers, from going on tour and Annie Oakley from the sex workers art show tour was our tour manager. But I like reoriented my brain around it being okay to accept money for our labor as artists, because, um, I had come from Portland where people, you know, would be like, Oh, I can't, I can't afford to pay for the the show, but I'm going to go to the show or, you know, art should be free. Like there was like a sticker I saw in someone's fridge, like art should be free. And I just had this really strong person in my life being like, people pay a fucking plumber. They'll pay for cigarettes. They'll pay for all these things. Why wouldn't they pay you for taking your body on tour? Or for like leaving your home and your job and entertaining them. Well, it's a very privileged concept too, because it's like if art has to be free, then only people who can afford to work for free can do it. Yeah. It just, it's so, it just feels like such a radical shift. And it is such like a, like you were saying, like such an interrogation is the classism of whatever scene. Um. Anyway. I think too, like, you know, I, I'm not going to say exclusively, but I do think a lot of that kind of like, you know, art should be free shame around money, um, comes from kind of like, you know, white punk culture. And I feel like class, you know, I talk a little bit about this in the book, right? Like, and it's not even class, like you can't choose your class background, but you can choose an experience of marginalization of like not earning enough. It's one of the only experiences of marginalization that you can actively pursue and choose. And so people do it because they like fetishize marginalization. So we're all dealing with, you know, I call it like post-punk baggage, right? Oh my God. Well, we talk about this on the podcast all the time as punk damage, same same thing. But just the punk damage, and you talk about this too, about just the idea of like, if something is like, has holes in it, throw it away. Like there's this like punk damage, like this weird intersection of like environmentalism and being a miser and like class drag and whatever, where you're like wearing a barrel and suspenders. Cause you're like, I'm saving the earth by wearing a barrel and suspenders and not buying anything new. Mm-hmm. I call it ecologically induced hoarding. I literally just got back from my sister's <laughs> farm in Mendocino when she's moving out of, and she and I love like, you know, beautiful trash. So she just had, I was basically brought there to help her throw things away because she just was like, I did not understand that these things were trash. Like I just would be like, this is trash. This is trash. Nobody wants this. It's dirty. It has holes. Like, yes, it is a beautiful vintage piece, but like, it is disgusting. You know? Oh my God. I just moved. And if you saw my car right now is a hoarder car because it's full of stuff from my free box. Yeah. But I don't know what to do. I'm like, I have, I don't want to have a yard sale, but I want to have a yard sale, but maybe I'll take it to Goodwill, but maybe I'll put it on the internet. I just like, have this boxes. Where do you live? Where do you live? I'm in Los Angeles. Okay. I am in San Francisco and I, you know, I would say over the last uh, eight years, maybe there also has been like a serious decline in like free box. Cause it used to be right. Like I worked with Leslie lady. We had a free box. There were like different punk houses that had free boxes. And those were like the places to take stuff and they would get taken. But now I'm like, 
the last few times we've gotten rid of stuff, I'm like putting it on my social media. Like, where is there a free box? Where is there like the baby punks going to a free box? And it's just like, there's not. And I don't like that level. The people who want the stuff, you just can't get it to them. My thought was to take it nearby a free fridge to find like, Mm -hmm. where's a free fridge in my neighborhood? Okay. I can put any kitchen oriented free box items like mugs or something near that. I have, we made this one box because we just could not get rid of it, but it's all these like it's not all, but it's a little box of basically vintage, but really from probably like the twenties and thirties, but things that were like falling apart, but that were so incredible and are also for someone incredibly tiny. And I started picturing this high school goth. Like I was like, we have to find this femme high school goth waif and her friend who's like a 50s, 60s punk and her other friend who's like a hippie. And I'm saving this box for them. And it's called like the vintage waif hope chest. And it's up in my sister's closet. But I really was like on my social media, like, please tell me, like, I have to find these girls. Like, where are they? And I was like, if I can't find it, I'm going to take this box and leave it outside Oakland Tech High School. And probably I'll get arrested because they'll think I'm like putting a bomb out or something. But really, I just want the children to have the vintage they deserve. You got to take that stuff to rock camp. And then the the kids that go to best idea, the kids that go to rock camp will be like, Oh my God, they'll show up with like their long rainbow hair. And somebody who's like me, if I was that age, when I was that age and I was wearing like baggy, like just like baggy pajama pants, wishing that they were bondage pants, like that kind of kid that comes Mm -hmm. will be like, oh my God. Mm -hmm. That is a really good idea. But even rock camp, I mean, it's like weird in the pandemic. My niece went Mm. last year, you know, and it's very like, there's eight people at a time. And you know what I mean? Like they're completely contained and they're like not touching anything, but one of the, there was definitely some baby goths in the crowd. So. Oh, for sure. Um, I want to wrap around God to everything, but okay. So we talked a little bit about people's class privilege and we have to acknowledge all the marginalizations that are authentic and like race and the idea that like manifestation, you know, like there's that, that meme or whatever, that's like, you know, maybe, maybe it was manifestation. Maybe you just have white privilege, like that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. I feel like you do a nice job in your book of acknowledging marginalization and the way that affects people's money. I mean, it would be absolutely wild not to do so. It is absolutely wild when people do not do so because the entire structure of caste you know, racial caste in the United States and globally that's like based on colonialism is all economically based. Like the entire system is based on economics. And that is the economic system in which we are like doing our personal financial planning or whatever. So that is definitely not an aside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And to that end, you have people think about and talk about their family lineage and their family history with money. Can you talk a little bit about that and what can be, I know that friend to the show, Beth Pickens also has people do this, like write down their family history with money. What can be gotten or what can be healed or what can be learned by kind of unpacking how your family has dealt with money? The premise of a lot of my work, what I came to over time is it is these spiritual, emotional pieces that 
impact people's relationship with money. And it's like the relationship is what impacts your capacity to show up, right? Like in, in any kind of relationship. So people are not showing up to their financial process, right? That's avoidance or they're showing up with heavy loads of like shame, you know, which leads to overwhelm and shutdown and sorting out that kind of like under the surface level makes things start to make sense, which I think is really instrumental in reducing shame. Because at this point, often we just show up to our finances or, you know, by which like, we're like, I'm going to download Mint. I'm going to like do this budget this year. I'm going to like stick to it. And then you don't. And you're like, oh, something's wrong with me. I'm bad with money. You know, all these coded shame words. And you just are like, well, I'm fucked up. I can't do this. Right. But that's not actually what's going on. What's going on is there's all these like woundings and injuries. And those are very loud and very present with you when you sit down with your money. And if you keep ignoring them, it's sort of like never going to get any better. So it's about really addressing what's going on and making sense of the things that on the surface were like, oh, that doesn't even make any sense. Like, why can't I do this? I guess something's wrong with me. But the ancestral lineage piece, I think, can help make sense of things and behaviors from your parents, but also yourself, you know, your grandparents, whoever raised you that kind of seem to make no sense. A super good example of that would be, um, I've been a tax preparer for a long time. And, um, I remember working with this one, uh, woman and this is not a singular story. Like I've heard this multiple times, right. Where people are like, have this irrational fear that the IRS is basically going to come like bust down their door. And when I was doing her taxes, it's like, she wasn't even doing anything illegal. Like, it's like she had a job, you know, she was like an artist at a nonprofit. Like there's just no reason on earth why that would like ever happen. Even if you are doing shit illegal, like you're only going to get a letter in the mail, you know, like they're never going to come to your door. But going into it, it's like that is an ancestral trauma, right? Like that's from, you know, police, military, like intervention on people's homes, forcible movement, like forcible relocation, um, you know, jail, like whatever is in the lineage. It's just like in her DNA that she, you know, or, you know, however you understand ancestral lineage to work and show up in your body. So I just, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's why I feel like that. I don't have to feel crazy or ashamed. It's like, I just maybe need to go in and do some looking at that and do some healing with it. Yeah. And then healing yourself within a system that, that kind of forcible relocation exists. Like, I mean, there's Mm -hmm. just so many things too, that are systemic and we're just, we're responding to that by like then trying to avoid it or hide from it or taking it onto ourselves. It's just a lot. It is a lot. Being human is a lot. It's a lot. Um, how, so we're talking about how important your emotions are to your money. Um, and I just want to hop over to the idea, you know, kind of also grow talking about that sort of like punk damage thing, or the idea of being anti-capitalist, but living in a capitalist society and just still having to work within it, even if you don't believe it's the best way. Um, I'm going to ask you, I, 
you know, I've recently come, come around to hearing people talk about like, it's okay to want to make more money because then you can be more generous and give more money away to things that you care about, which I think, I think that your book and your work really also promotes this kind of spirit of not this idea that like, you're not actually solving capitalism by making yourself small and avoiding your finances and under earning. Oh, and in fact, you know, for example, like when another tax example, it's like if you avoid doing your taxes because you don't want to like pay money into empire, the only thing that's going to happen at the end of the day is you're also going to end up paying late fees and interest. So ultimately you like gave more money to empire, you know, so it's like these things where people are doing something with a sentiment, but they're not actually logical. And as an Aquarius moon, I hate that. I'm like, um, this doesn't make sense. So don't do that. Um, there are ways that we like want to resist and like ought to resist any number of, um, you know, hegemonic economic issues or, you know, circumstances that are present in our lives and our communities, but it's like not doing your bookkeeping for your small business is not, um, destroying capitalism. And the opt out, I think is, also it's two-sided right like sometimes it comes from a place of sort of privilege and sometimes it comes from a place of just being like I can't believe we have to exist here like how can I just sort of pretend that we don't but I think you know it's my spiritual belief personally like you're incarnated in a moment for a reason and this is where we are. We're in late stage global capitalism. We're in colonialism, like we're in empire. And the point of your short human life is not to like avoid those things as much as possible. Like you will get to avoid them relatively soon, you know, when you pass from this earth, but you, while you're here, your job is like to reconcile and be genius within them. and to engage the systems in a way that creates healing and just kind of like avoidance does not facilitate healing. Yeah. And especially um, avoiding money as a marginalized person so that your life, your, so that your life stays small in a particular way or a little stressful in a particular way doesn't feel like moving towards healing. No. You know, and your book. So you have so much about emotional healing, but I want to talk a little bit about how to bring your spiritual practice into your money relationship. Sure. How the fuck do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love a money altar that is like big for me. In the book, every chapter has um, like an allies, money magic allies section that has archetypes like astrological archetypes, tarot archetypes, um, crystals, herbs that you could work with. And then the end of the chapter has a ritual that you could like wrap up with. So there's some very concrete, like things you could try exercises in the book. Um, one of them is money altar. If you are, I think like tchotchke queens are really just like little altars everywhere, babes, you know? So, 
um, why not have a little money altar just even on a windowsill or somewhere um, where you are like actively kind of loving on and engaging cash and sort of even experimenting with the idea that like money could be beautiful. What would it look like if like money was beautiful in your life? I used to have a long time ago, Michelle T told me this kind of, I don't know if it was a spell or just a mantra that was just like, money loves me. Money is sexually attracted to me. Money wants to be with me. And I Mm -hmm. wrote it down and I had it like on my mirror or in my journal. Yeah. I have a money is sexually attracted to me oil that I make. You do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think money is sexually attracted to me came out of the lusty lady. (laughs) I think that was like the thought factory that was the lusty lady. Oh my God. I love that. I love seeing that all around. And still mm-hmm. you're just like, come to me, come to me to that end. Well, it's I have- about being receptive too. Right. And being yeah. like, it's not just like, Oh, I'm chasing paper every day of my life. It's like, okay, I'm going to stop blocking the receptivity. Like I'm going to allow myself to be resourced. I think there's an affirmation in my book. It's like, I'm a well-resourced person who helps resource others. And we need to be like a web of resourced people. We need resources in our web. Like we can't all be broke. And especially people who can make money. Like there's so many people in queer community who are not going to be able to make as much money, right? Because they're living in marginalized bodies, the mental health issues that can go along with that. Um, the instability that like contributes to not being able to like make larger amounts of money. Those of us who can make money just need to do it to like funnel it into the community. Today's episode is brought to you by Jamie Soretti, Kim Mishimoto, Jamie Rabin, Laura Perry, Ellis Bernhardt, Emily Drake, Claudia Taylor, Remedios Martinez, Soshana Ruth Wechter, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo. It's hellbooks on Venmo. H-E, double hockey sticks, books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. Dear Sagittarian Matters and Money Witch, I'm an artist doing really well right now financially, but not having regular guaranteed income makes it so hard to relax and not stress even when my bank account is flush. Help. Signed, freaking in Florida. Oh, I'm from Florida. Also, they have very good letter writing manners. Oh. I thought. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I would say that when you have inconsistent income that comes in in like big spurts or big waves. For example, maybe you're a painter, right? And you're like selling a $6,000 painting, but you're not doing it once a month, maybe. So I think of it as like a sort of tidal quality, right? Like there's going to be water that comes in, there's going to be water that flows out and you can't get anxious then 
when the tide goes out, right? Like it's just a natural part of the flow. Capitalism wants us to feel like what abundance looks like is things just get like more and more and more and more and more. And if they're not like more than the day before every single day, then we're doing something wrong and, you know, it's time to get anxious. But I think just embracing your own flow, like really taking the time to look at like, what does the flow look like in your business? Um, And then remembering like, okay, well, when the water comes in, it's not time to spend the $6,000, you know, it's time to be like, oh, spend $2,000 and put money in, I could think of it like um, holding pools, right? Like with the water flow, like, okay, we also are going to put some money over here and we're also going to put money over here. And then we're not going to get anxious when, you know, in the next two weeks, like things are not happening in such a flush way. We're going to have taken care of it. And also thinking about maybe like, what are some more consistent um, streams of income that you could bring in, right? Like teaching or um, smaller product-based things to kind of supplement. A lot of it is personality too, right? Like can your personality and your nervous system tolerate your financial <laughs> like experience. But if it can, I think then just remembering when those big waves come in. So just like tuck some away for the future, not because it's going to be catastrophic or things are going to be terrible, but just because that's like the natural rhythm of your life. That's great. Okay. Here's the question that goes along with that, which is from somebody else. Dear Sagittarius Matters and Money Witch, I grew up working class and punk how do I get out of a scarcity mindset from scarce and schenectady? My favorite book about scarcity is called The Trance of Scarcity by Victoria Castle. And I use a working definition of scarcity and abundance that is based on hers, um, which is scarcity is there's not enough, I'm not enough, or things are for other people, but not for me. So In order to balance that, you're going to have to like really work with the idea of abundance in your life. And it doesn't have to be super cheesy, but it does have to be kind of like introducing neural pathway messaging that counters that, which is there is enough, I am enough, and things are for me just as much as they're for other people, right? So kind of like working with that, sticking that on a post-it, getting it like wherever it needs to go. That book, Trance of Scarcity, has a lot of really great exercises about trying to feel your way into the visceral sensation of like what it would feel like to be resourced, what it would feel like to have enough, And then I would be looking at any ways in your life that you are continuing to choose that experience, like a tangible experience of scarcity through, you know, your choices about work, your choices about spending. Sometimes people who have um, this kind of baggage, like even if you get a bunch of money in, you might spend it all really fast because you don't feel comfortable with having money in the bank account thinking about like, what would it mean to have money in the bank? Like, what would it feel like or mean to you to have like 10 or $20,000 in the bank and not need to spend it all? So I just think it's about really like exploring 
just exploring, giving yourself some space to explore, permission to play mentally a little bit. And then any when you strike on things that feel meaningful, like bringing them into affirmation status uh, in order to try to repattern the way your actual brain works a little bit. I think that's really great. Okay. On to student loans. Fabulous. Dear Money Witch, because Sagittarian Matters don't know. Do you have any tips for student loans that are crushing specifically when or how or why to refinance from crushed in California? It's a bit of a hard one. I feel like there are certain levels of student loans that are not conceivably payoffable. Like I've had clients who have had, you know, close to $200,000 in student loans. So it kind of depends what we mean when we say crushing, right? Yeah. Like if by crushing, we mean, you know, maybe somewhere between like up to $50,000. I think that that is manageable. Once we start getting to a hundred, you know, between a hundred to 200, it really is a little bit in God's hands at that point, by which I mean, you need to understand like how to manage the loans in a way that is like not going to destroy your life. You know, you should be trying to pay off, you know, like make your payments, don't default on your payments. But that is a level of student loan uh, debt that is probably going to require forgiveness from the government at some point. And, you know, we can fingers crossed that like this is a national issue that is going to continue increasing in uh, urgency. And it might not be now, right? Like it might not be this year or in five years, but at some point in people's lifetimes, like I have to assume that there's going to be some addressing of the issue. Refinancing can be a great choice. It just depends on... um, like read the fine print and really try to understand like what the implications would be to you in terms of um, forgiveness programs, like what type of loans you have are relevant in forgiveness programs. Um, If you have a real crushing amount, taking a look into if you can participate in um, one of those like nonprofit, you know, the 10 years in a nonprofit um, Mm. can get you a level of forgiveness, but again, it's like certain kinds of loans. So whether your loans are federal or private makes a big difference. Um, so really like looking into the fine print and it probably would be worth it to hire somebody, um, who is like a little bit of an expert on the field. to just get some consulting, like allow yourself to get some support the same way you would go into therapy or something. I'm not sure if that's a great answer. So I think that's, you know what? It's more than I had. I would just be like, Fake your own death. Change no. your name. Don't Go. have children. Live, don't have, you can't have children. You also can't have friends because you're going to have to pretend like something happened to you and you have to go somewhere else where you can never talk to anyone you know again. You build from the yes. ground up. That's my advice. <laughs> it's maybe also not in line with your book. And 
not self-abandoning. I'm like, literally abandon yourself, build a new self. (laughs) Physically, actually. Physically from the ground up, new person. Hey, writers and artists, do you want to be told what to do? Do you want a loving but firm presence to give you direction in this unanswerable world? Join Homework Club and let author and arts consultant Beth Pickens break life down into manageable steps. Just $15 a month for homework, workshops, and connect with other artists and writers through customized accountability pods. Homework Club. Go to BethPickens.com for more information. I have my own personal question. Right. Dear Money Witch. Yes. Live, live tweeting. What are your, do you have recommended steps for home ownership for someone who's a freelance person with no generational wealth? Dave Ramsey, noted Christian, wants a 20% down payment. What say you? From Nicole in Tahunga. I would say, I mean, the number one thing about self-employed people and home ownership is you need those tax returns to say the right thing. And you usually need like two years. So if you even think that home ownership is on the horizon in the next couple of years, it's sort of time to start filing some tax returns where you are perhaps not trying to maximize your deductions because you really want to see some higher level profit years in order to get, you know, secure the loan that you want to get. So that is going to require a couple of years of paying higher taxes, which is a bummer, but you just have to kind of, um, I don't know, charge it to the game. Like it's just part of the it's the fee. It's part of the fees essentially of home uh, buying. But the cool thing about that is, you know, as a self-employed person, your tax returns could say anything you want, really, you know, like, or any, like anything could be true. So I think, I think that is key. Um, I just think of like the preparation process, um, making sure like tax returns is a big one, making sure your credit score is looking good and like as cleaned up as possible, really like maybe spending a year on that project so that you're going to get like the lowest um, interest rate that you possibly can. Taking a look at any kinds of uh, programs you might be eligible for in terms of like if you work in education or, you know, any of those options, I know my boyfriend was, I could get a mortgage at like, it was like half a percent down or something like that because he works in education, which I thought was wild. But really at the end of the day, in terms of how much you're going to put down, it's a question of like, you know, what's functional for you, right? Like there could be like, that's a great idea, you know, Dave Ramsey and Jesus Christ, because like the more you put down, obviously like the less interest you're going to pay over time. And I love that. Like as much as you can pay things in cash, like just do it. Right. But if that's not an option for you, then it's not like you don't deserve to ever buy a house. 
right? So it's like, if you can only save 10% and you can manage to make it work in terms of like getting a mortgage, then I feel like do it. The main piece is like, do the math ahead of time, like really go ahead and look at how much it's going to cost you on a month to month basis. And then like, is that viable for you so that you don't get yourself in over your head, you know, and then have this thing that you worked really hard on building and creating kind of like, I don't know, be, you know, be taken away and have this like, you know, sad story that like perpetuates the myth that like you can't have anything good and um, things aren't for you. But I think as long as you have a plan and really like take the time to like craft out the details that there's any number of options and you like absolutely do not have to do it in a prescribed formula way. So much. I, as we know, this question is from me and as a self-employed person, I'm just like, everyone's like, I'm 23 and I'm a barista and I bought a house. And I'm just like, oh, everyone else's families have money. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm like, what's the key? I guess I'm just not working hard enough. And then the key is maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's generational wealth. Well, and it's that's it's the down payment, right? I mean, that's yeah. the down payment. So you're really just going to have to like, it's like the savings piece just is super relevant. So I'd say from like a men- mentality perspective, you just have to be like, I am super focused on saving as much money as humanly possible. And that can get into a scarcity feeling, right? Or if you like, grew up in poverty, it can activate those feelings. If you have like negative experiences with dieting culture, it can activate those feelings, but it's about a priority, right? Like, it's not like you can't have things or, you know, being limited makes you a good person. Saving more money makes you a good person. It's like, okay, would I rather have whatever it is? You know what I mean? Like, would I rather have this purse or would I rather have a hundred dollars towards my house and just really like you know, being in that and just being like, like joyful, right? Because our, when we have to make these financial behavioral shifts out of a sense of obligation or like we have to, then they're just a fucking bummer, you know? But it's like when it is for joy, that's different, right? So just being like, oh, it's so fun. It's so fun to like put money away. You know, it feels good. Like, because I want this house and I'm doing something for myself. So like on my birthday, I could like do X, Y, Z, or I could like put $500 away for my house. And that is awesome. I like reframing it as joyful. It ricochets me back to a different thing. Like, um, of you talking about kind of self-abandonment and those splurge moments, like kind of those moments of like, you have a budget for yourself, you have a spending plan, you have a thing, but then you get that kind of fuck it feeling or that kind of like, I'm going to pamper myself. And then you fuck with your plan. I think, um, I think about the idea of spoiling because Mm -hmm. I find it much easier to imagine self-love and self-care. Like when you think about taking care of someone else, right. Or like specifically a child and my definition of spoiling is like giving a kid what they want, but not what they need. Right. So in those moments, you're like, okay, I'm not giving myself what I need. Right. But I am giving myself something that I want. And if you think about like what it would look like to do that with an actual child, you know, you, you might be able to find a a moment of being like, actually the more loving thing to do is like, be like, no, you know, we can't stay up till three in the morning on a school night or whatever, because I care about this person. I want them to have like a positive experience in the world, like in a holistic sense. But 
some of us were raised with that, right? Where we were given um, material things instead of having our emotional needs met. And so it's like a pattern, right? Like, oh, I'm not going to necessarily um, feed my own need for stability, but I am going to buy myself a new outfit, right? So it might be worth a pause, like, oh, actually, is that how I was raised too? You know, where I was like not given stability and the people around me like didn't spend their money to give me stability, but they did spend money on like giving me material items. Um, and also it's sort of symptomatic of like an exhausted inner parent, right? Like it is exhausting to parent, even to reparent yourself. And sometimes it's like, okay, no, I can't meet your need for, you know, security, comfort, camaraderie, like whatever it is that you need in this moment, but I can like buy you sushi, you know? So just sort of that check-in moment. I think those kind of self-sabotaging parts of ourselves are usually trying to show love. It's just that their definition of love might not be holistic or kind of like educated enough, like emotionally intelligent enough. So it's like, can we help those parts of ourselves that are kind of like, no, you deserve this. Or like, I'm going to get you something nice because like, I care about you. Could we help those parts of ourselves specifically try to achieve a higher level of emotional maturity so that they can like also get on the team of like holistic self-love and care. And this is, this was one of my favorite parts of your book. I really, so if people want to find this sentiment and more, they can find them in your book. Can I ask you, what is your favorite part of your book? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the intro just like love. There's a section called like love letter from the money, Witch, where I'm just like, you know, this is for you. You can do it. Like just, yeah. Cause that's kind of my love letter you know, it's everybody. Like, I, I believe in you. I want you to do this. You can do this. Um, no matter how many times before you've been like, I'm going to do it with money. And then like, haven't like you deserve redemption. You deserve another shot. Um, you deserve another shot that is like recognizing all parts of you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think the intro just cause that's where I get to give the most love. And it, it was written so beautifully. Thank too. you. You're welcome. Okay. Well, that's all my questions. <laughs> okay. We fixed everything. I think we fixed everything. I think Perfect. that listeners are really going to appreciate this. Um, how can they find you? How can they work with you? You can find me on my beautiful new website at moneywitch.com. You can find me on Instagram at money.witch because, you know, some like rando dude has at moneywitch. Um, and I have, I have to wait until I become like famous enough that Instagram cares enough to go snatch it from them. Um, you can find me on YouTube. I have a channel slash moneywitch. You can find my online classes on Teachable, but links to everything, um, including my money magic store where I have the money is sexually attracted to me oil, my book, all those things. Um, you know, they're all at moneywitch.com. Wonderful. Well, Jesse Susanna Carnats, thank you for coming to Sagittarian. Thank you for the invite. So fun. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Panyo Georges. 
Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.